Now, in my study of this passage, there are divided opinions among theologians and all that when it comes to these first three verses of Malachi. The first is that it is all uh, eschatological. It, it, all, it is all future. Um, that eschatology, if you are not familiar with that word, it's a theological term. It's the study of last things. A lot of people think it's just this uh, great apocalyptic picture of zombies and, and all that, but it's really the study of anything of last things. So it's, it's death. It, 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 it includes heaven and hell and the, the uh, intermediate state and so on and so forth. But in, in this sense, in the commentator's sense, that everything here is future to even us today. Now, Christ ushered in the last days at his first advent, so in a sense, it is all eschatological. But um, for this, uh, these commentators and these theologians, they would say it's far into the future even today. The second position that people hold is that it's all describing the first coming of Christ. So the verses that we are talking about today of this, of this consuming fire, the burning oven, and the evildoers and the arrogant being um, wiped out and consumed, it's, a, it's in a spiritual sense that when Christ came, when he lived and he died and he rose again, those, the evil was consumed spiritually because he defeated uh, sin and death. But then there is a third position that um, I would favor here, and it is a dual fulfillment position, that there was fulfillment for those who were in Malachi's time who this prophecy was given, but there is also a greater fulfillment at another time. And this is the position that I would personally argue for. And I am not alone in this position. And no, I'm not going to quote R.C. Sproul here. I'm going to quote Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, Here is a reference to the first and second coming of Christ. God has fixed the day of both. And later in Matthew Henry's comments on this passage, he contrasts the flames of the oven that are for the wicked to the sun of righteousness, uh, which uh, most would agree points to Christ. Both are fire, but one consumes and the other saves. It's not uncommon in the Bible, when we looking at when looking at prophecy, to see certain passages have dual fulfillment. Uh, this is the uh, one example is when in the book of Daniel it talks of the abomination of desolation, and there is a uh, scene in history when Antiochus sacrifices a pig upon the altar, declares himself God. But then Jesus, in his famous Olivet Discourse, uh, says, When you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by the prophet Daniel, uh, flee to the hills, flee to the mountains. And in the book of Luke, it gives a different wording. It's when you see Jerusalem surrounded on all sides by armies, uh, you know that the end is near. And this led up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., and so there was a greater fulfillment there, and there are those who even believe that there is a further fulfillment of that even in our future, in the end, in the end of the age, in the end times. But regardless, there is a dual fulfillment here. It meant one thing for those who it was given, and a greater fulfillment in the future. Another example uh, is Isaiah 7, 
verses 7 through 16. And the first part says, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So we have this off, then we have an offer to Ahaz to receive a sign. And Ahaz refuses to test God, and God responds with this very famous and um, um, popular verse that we read around Christmas time. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curd honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, these two kings will be laid to rest. So this is obviously long before Christ, yet Matthew links this prophecy to the birth of Christ. One commentator writes, so Isaiah referred to a woman, a virgin when the prophecy was made, who would become pregnant and bear a son, and a few years after that Israel and Aram would be destroyed. That was the near fulfillment. In the New Testament, the Apostle Matthew connects the virgin birth of Jesus with the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Jesus' virgin birth is the far fulfillment, fuller and more complete. And there are others throughout Scripture, but this is just to give you a bit of context into this position here. That immediately after this, um, or as we get into the Verse 1 here in chapter 4, it brings our attention. God calls our attention to what is about to be said with the word behold. It's a very strong word. It's a word that grasps the the listener to focus in. The word here for behold is used 841 times in the Old Testament. So when it is said, God's people should probably listen. It says the day is coming. So behold, the day is coming. It's not here yet, at least in the time of this prophecy, when when Malachi is giving this. He says, the day is coming, future for you. Um, And what day is he talking about? Now, if we remember our study of Matthew, we know that uh, the people of God here are uh, rebellious people. They are doing things that they should not be doing. There is the rebuking of the priests that must happen. Uh, God is calling his people back to himself. If his people were faithful and stayed close to him, there would be no need to call them back to himself. There is rampant divorce going on. There is idolatry making its way through Israel. Uh, There is the robbing of God of what uh, belongs to him. And the wicked are prospering. And they asked this question that we talked about a number of weeks ago, where is the God of justice? Where is he? Why isn't he doing something about all of this? Is this the day that is coming that they're talking about? Well, no. It's not a day of sin that's coming. We read, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The day that is coming does away with evil. It does away with sin. It does away with rebelliousness. It is the calling of God's people to himself where they will never again rebel and leave him. He keeps them when all the arrogant and evildoers will become stubble. Now, this is a very vivid illustration if you've ever seen stubble get consumed by a fire. Um, it's, a, it's a very clear illustration that there is nothing left. And there's a difference here between a refining fire and a consuming fire. Both are fire, but they have different purposes for different things. If we look back at chapter 3 of the book of Malachi, verses 2 and 3, it says this, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and, a full, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The fire that we see here in chapter 4 consumes. There's nothing left. It doesn't leave a root or a branch to, uh, for anything else to grow out of, for anything else to come out of. But back in chapter 3, we see this picture of a refining fire, where once the fire refines the person, the sons of Levi here, refines them like gold, it makes them pure. It doesn't consume them, but as they come out on the other end of the fire, they are pure and they bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So There are two groups of people that will go through fire. Some will come out as stubble and be utterly destroyed. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, what that means. But the others... Those who are in Christ will be purified, will go through and come out as God intended us to on the other side, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, righteous before Him and holy. A refining fire purifies that which comes through the fire. Consuming fire destroys that which is in the fire. Now, to deal with what these verses are not teaching. The first one... Um, is the doctrine of annihilationism. This is the idea that there is no hell. It's not universalism. It's not that everybody goes to heaven. But it's this idea that when somebody dies, a wicked person dies, somebody who dies outside of Christ, and they go to hell, or if there is a hell, most people don't believe in hell who hold to annihilationism, that they just cease to exist. That there is an eternal punishment, there is an eternal torment, the lake of fire is just symbolic of this consuming fire, and that they just cease to exist forever. They will never come back. That's not what these verses are teaching. It's not annihilationism. The second is a more common position, um, and that is the doctrine of purgatory. This is not speaking of purgatory as the Roman Catholic Church would think of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, uh, they usually quote this in saying, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The doctrine of purgatory is that 
we can be completely purified or completely made holy here in this life. And so when we die, we go to purgatory to be cleansed and to be made perfect and to be made holy and righteous so that we could enter into the presence of God. And that's not what these verses are teaching either. These are judgment passages. Um, The wicked are not obviously actually stubble. This is a picture of judgment. It is uh, prophetic language. It is apocalyptic language. It is to paint a picture for us of what God is doing. But this judgment is final. It is eternal. Just because the root gets burned up does not mean that the soul of the person ceases to exist in the next life. But the eternal punishment, the lake of fire, the consuming fire is the final destination for those who end without Christ. The fact that there is no root just leaves no hope for anything else to grow. And this is one reason I take these passages as a dual fulfillment, but for the second coming of Christ. Because at the second coming of Christ, all evil will be done away with. All sin will be done away with. All the roots of evil will be thrown away. No more will evil be able to come and enter into uh, existence. It is over. It is finished. But these verses, this first verse here, does not always uh, offer um, pessimism. For us who are in Christ, for those who are called according to his purposes, who fear the Lord, this, this verse gives us assurance and it gives us hope. When we get caught up in the world today, where there's evil, where there's injustice, when there are things going on that we don't actually understand, and we might be tempted to say, where is God in all of this? It's nice to know that a day is set when the Lord is coming. It is nice to know, and it is nice to have that future hope, to know that God says, behold, the day is coming when I will do away with these things. When sin, when evil, when wickedness will all be consumed and thrown away, where you will never have to deal with it again, true justice will be served. Nobody gets away with anything in this life, for God sees all, God knows all, and nobody will escape that judgment. All the more reason to be in Christ, to look to Him as our Savior, to look to Him as our only hope for salvation. For only in Christ will we be able to stand on that day. God is completely sovereign, and our trust in Him is seen in this verse, and and His sovereignty is seen in this verse. And it leads us to one of the greatest words in all of Scripture, and that is the word, but. And it's this idea that there is something else coming. Now, The word but is not always a good thing in Scripture. If we look at the book of Revelation and Christ's words to the churches there in the first couple chapters, he'll say something good about one church, then he says, but I have this against you. When somebody is saying good things and then follows it up with but, something not so good is probably on its way. But when something negative is being said to you, 
or you're being critiqued, and then it's followed up with the word, but. Usually, something good and positive is about to come out of the person's mouth. And we see that here in this verse as well. But for you who fear my name. We have those who do not fear God and this destruction that is coming upon them and maybe the hopelessness that comes from just reading this verse on the surface. And then verse 2, but for you who fear my name. All of this judgment, all of this darkness, consuming fire, of course we deserve it. We deserve nothing good but God in his great mercy saved us, but God sanctifies us, but God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 9 is an excellent passage where we see these two wonderful words, but God. Starting in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen. That's the good news. But God is good news for a sinner. Because we all lived according to the flesh. We were once all enemies of God. We once all carried on the desires of our sinful nature and our body and mind. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to die for us. Now, one of the biggest critiques that people have against Christianity and specifically the Bible is this idea that there were different gods, there was a different God in the Old Testament than we see in the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was angry and wrathful and he, he was bitter and he just had this agenda of destruction. But then in the New Testament, he sends Christ and Christ is loving and peaceful and just wants everybody to be happy together. They're two different gods. That's not what I see here. I see a consistent God. I see a God who is angry at sin. I see a God who does not tolerate sin. I see a God who does not seek anybody other than by mercy and other than by grace. I see a God who, even though his people are rebellious and stiff-necked and have constantly turned away from him over and over again, he says, but for you who fear my name. I'm still here. I'm still your God, and you are still my people, and I still have covenant with you, and I still love you. And even at the beginning of this book, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? They still argue back, yet God is still faithful. God is still merciful. God is still kind to them. It's the gospel. 
It's a picture of us and our rebellious hearts, our sinful hearts against God. That God does not forget his promises that he has made to us. God does not forget or break covenant with us. But if we are in Christ, we are secure. We are held by him. We are called by him. And nothing can pluck us out of the hand of God. God still says to his people, If you fear my name, there is healing. There is salvation. There is restoration for you. The son of righteousness here in verse 2, But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The son of righteousness here represents Christ. And most commentators would agree with that, at least all the good ones. Um, Trapp writes this, Cloud in his passion, and break forth against in his resurrection. From heaven he daily darts forth his beams of righteousness and showers down all spiritual blessings in heavenly privileges. Christ is the light that reveals all things. He is the fi- the consuming fire for the wicked, but the healing, the warmth, the comfort for those who humbly come to him in faith. Now, wings in the Bible, I think it should be brought attention here, uh, have a few different uh, pictures. Um, The Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim's wings were stretched out over the mercy seat. There is a holiness to them. Isaiah 41 gives us strength. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings as eagles. Uh, Jesus' lament is a comfort, yet it was not received. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing to reject the Son of Righteousness and and the wings of healing that he brings is to reject the comfort of God, is to reject the safety of God, is to reject the salvation of God. In the book of Psalms, in many places, it represents safety. The shadow of your wings is said several times throughout the Psalms. This is Christ. The first coming, the coming of the Messiah, is the spiritual healing and restoration of sinners. He did what he, he set out to do. He accomplished what he set out to do. He is a Savior, and he saved. He still saves. On the cross, he died, that the ransom was paid, the forgiveness of sins by the shedding of blood, and he rose again to give us that assurance. Now, the second coming, we do not fear judgment at his second coming. We are saved. We are saved through the fire. The video, there's, a, there's a video going around for this passage here in verse 2 in this part of the calves from the stall. There's a, there's a video that's quite funny and heartwarming and all that, but it's these cows that have spent their entire lives indoors in this concrete floor. It's not necessarily a slaughterhouse per se, but it's just people who are neglecting and abusing these cows. And authorities got involved and they couldn't have the cows anymore, so this team came in, put all the cows on, on these uh, buses, these trucks, and shipped them off to farmers with these big pastures. And they open the, the door, and these cows walk out. They're very um, cautious at first. They're not set on to the grass, 
But as soon as they do, it's if cows could be expressive in their faces, this would be the time. Because you, there's a change in their posture as they run out into the field. And these are fully grown cows leaping and bounding across this field because they're feeling grass for the first time. They're not shut up in their stalls. They're not prisoners anymore. They're out and they are free. And we have this picture here of uh, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. When we are set free, when Christ is our Lord, when we are free from the bondage of sin, when we are free from the bondage of the law, we have freedom and joy in Christ as these cows, as these calves do out in these open fields where they can leap and bound uh, as they will. It's their nature. And the question for, that, for you from that is, how often do you think about the joy of your salvation? Or does this, the truth of salvation just sit on us like, yeah, I'm, I'm saved. I'm good. Okay, what do I do about it? Yeah, Jesus is Lord. Or do you find joy in salvation? Does it bring you great gladness? Do you want to leap? Do you want to go out into the world proclaiming the name of Christ to all you meet? And uh, I must confess, I, I am a timid person outside, um, outside in the general public. Uh, we had an evangelism class last semester at the seminary, and it was a challenge for me. It, it really was. Um, but it was also humbling, because it showed me, it caused me to really look at myself and think, do I love other people? Do I love other people enough to go up to them, to talk to them, to share the good news of Christ? Do I really desire other people to be saved, or am I just content in myself? There's no joy in the salvation unless you're going out and proclaiming, this is good news. When you have a baby, you want to share it with everybody. When things happen in your life that is good, you want other people to know. So why is it different when we get saved and we call upon Christ as our Lord? Why is it different? Why are we so afraid to go out and proclaim His name? Why are we so afraid? We shouldn't be afraid of rejection. The world has already rejected you, church. So We have nothing to lose, but we have everything to gain. Is there joy in your salvation? Do you have hope? Do you have gladness? Do you have a desire for your own godliness and for others to come to know our great Savior? Because your place in the kingdom is a place of honor. Verse 3, You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. We share in victory with Christ. Treading down the wicked and they shall be ashes under our feet. This calls my attention to a similar picture. If you look at Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We share in Christ's victory now, but there is still an enemy out there, and that enemy is death. Death is still a reality and something that we must face. Now, Paul quotes Psalm 110 uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 27 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his, then at his coming those who belong to Christ... 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is Christ's victory over sin and death. It's Christ's victory over his enemies. Now, the final realization of this will be at his second coming. Christ has victory over death. We have victory over death in Christ. But we still experience death. We still see death. Death is a reality. But the final realization, when Christ returns, death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Death and the grave will be no more. As we saw in Ephesians 2, we were all once enemies of God. We were made friends of God. We were adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. Are you the calf leaping for joy from the stall this morning? Or are you the ashes that will be tread down under the feet of Christ? Will you be a footstool or will you reign with Christ in his kingdom? There is one hope, church. That is the hope of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, his victory over sin and death. He makes this plea to you today. I make this plea to you today. If you are here and you do not know the Lord Jesus today, I pray today will be the day of your salvation. Call upon his name in faith as the Son of God, as your Lord, as your Savior. Repent of your sins and turn to him. Flee from them and flee to Christ. And if you are here today and you are called by God and you are enjoying the salvation that Christ brings, then this is a glorious day that we look forward to, church. A glorious day when death will be no more, when all of Christ's enemies will be finally defeated, when the wicked shall be no more, and righteousness will be a reality. There is only hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your words. We are humbled by them. Lord, we know that Christ is our only hope, our only way of salvation, our only way to you. Father, I rejoice in your Son and what he has accomplished on the cross. I thank you for the people here who have been called by you to Christ. Fellowship share. Father, I pray if there's anybody here who does not know you, Lord, that you would uh, work in their lives, soften their hearts, bring them to repentance, that they may enjoy the joy of your salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.